welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. To take you back a little bit, in in 1939, um, there was a great massacre um, of, of Polish soldiers who were fighting against the Soviet Union, and um, about 20,000 people um, died of this, of this particular Polish regiment. And there was an officer, a young officer, who was also an artist and a critic. His name was Joseph Zapsky. And he was basically imprisoned along with about 300 other of the surviving officers in, in the army he was in, and they were imprisoned and basically sent to a Soviet labor camp to work hard labor all day, barely having, barely having any time for, for leisure or for rest. But when they had the opportunity, this, this artist and this young officer, Joseph Zapsky, began lecturing from memory on one of his favorite books that he read when he was um, a teenager, he read it in his childhood, and it was Marcel Proust's uh, um, In Search of Lost Time. And at one point he said that just remembering that book, remembering the, the great artistic work that it was, it, it gave him life. And it made him realize that there was still beauty in the world. And it helped him, if you will, keep his sanity and keep his sense of reality in a place in which he had no other books, no other papers to write. And he would continue to lecture to the rest of his friends in a small room. And he would note that you know, there were portraits of Stalin and there were portraits of Marx on the walls. But he would give these lectures and he would remember the goodness of this book I once read and he would bring it back by memory. And it was the power of this memory that really gave him life. Really, memory, if we think about it, it's something that makes us human. You know, they say a goldfish has like a five-second memory and stuff, but animals aren't usually remembered for their memory. Elephants are sometimes referenced, but, you know, I, I'm not sure how much a memory would do us any good to, to, to look at an elephant and kind of judge their memory. But really, memory makes us human because it makes us understand the whole picture of something And for God's people, when you tie in memory, the memory of what God has done and what God has said and what God has provided for you, it increases, not only increases your humanity, but it increases your faith. So God's people would do well, of course, to frequently remember God's goodness. And really this chapter, Isaiah 63, is a chapter, is a prophecy that Isaiah gives to God's people in exile when they don't see God's immediate provision and they don't see His immediate salvation and His presence guiding them in their life, it's not as a parent. They go back into their memories. They go back into what God has revealed, how God has revealed Himself to them in the Scriptures and in their history. The ways that God has saved them. And that's what gives them humanity. That's what gives them life. Just like that artist who remembered this, this novel. How much more powerful is it to remember the Word of God and to bring that, those past things into our present and to remember God's goodness. 
And so that's kind of what we are looking at in Isaiah chapter 63. Again, as I mentioned, it is a, a word of prophecy to people in exile to give them comfort. And our first image we get in Isaiah 63 that we're about to read is a really striking image of God in judgment. And so we read this at the start of this chapter. We read, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then there's quotes of someone speaking. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And the prophet asks, why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. And this person says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So we have this major striking image that, that kicks us off the, the start of this chapter. And it's a sort of dialogue between the prophet and another figure who emerges from a neighboring country, from Edom, who was one of Israel's foes. But the intention here isn't necessarily, doesn't seem to be God's particular and specific judgment of Edom, but rather it seems to make a larger point about God's judgment of Israel's enemies. And so when the prophet sees this figure at afar, he notices, oh, this, this interesting figure has splendid garments, as it is in verse 1. But then he kind of looks closer and he sees. In verse 2, that his apparel is, is stained red, like someone who, who treads in the wine press, someone who is making wine, in so much that the stains of the wine are getting into his clothes. And so the question turns from not only who is this, but why are you doing this? So he first he asks, who is this person? Who is this who comes from Edom? Who is this who is carrying out this brutal judgment upon Israel's enemy? And the, this is, as we see at the end of verse 1, we see God speaking, really. This is, this is really God speaking. And he says, it is I. I'm speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. We know this because these are characteristics of God. And so this incredible image of this figure stained in red, carrying out judgment, God saying, this is me. This is me working salvation through the judgment of this enemy. And so, Isaiah proceeds and he not only asks who, but he also asks why this person is, um, this person is stained red. And he goes into more detail and as to why he's stained red, he says, I have trotted the winepress alone, and for my peoples no one was with me, and I trotted them in my anger. So in the way that one treads a winepress, God is delivering judgment. 
with all the steps you might think of, of you know, making wine or, or grape juice, you, know, you, you find the ripe grapes, those things that have kind of aged on the branch or the vine for a while, you bring them and you pick them and you pluck them and you stump them until the juice is completely extracted. And this is kind of an example and it's a picture of God's divine judgment and it's a graphic metaphor for the judgment that God brings down on Israel's enemies where the wine is kind of likened to the lifeblood of the people He's judging. And so it's a brutal graphic picture of judgment. But it's complete in righteousness because God is saying, I'm administering complete, good, and faithful justice. It's divine judgment. It's, but also we have to understand the, the complete independence of God carrying out this judgment. And we see that God is su- uh, self-sufficient right here. And so the image that we're supposed to see with this really graphic, striking picture of judgment is that God is really self-sufficient in many ways. First of all, He's self-sufficient in judgment. And secondly, He's self-sufficient in salvation. So of course, we're going to look at first the fact that He's self-sufficient in judgment. God will be the one who finally and ultimately judges people. I don't know if they're still popular, but I don't know, 10 or 20 years back, there people had those shirts that said, like, only God can judge me, and it was like a famous thing. I'm sure it's a famous saying now. But like, that, that's like still just even more terrifying than any other human tribunal or any human person judging you because the fact that God can judge you means that God has the power to take your life to, to do these different things and to, to judge you in, in such a way. And really, that, that's what we kind of see right here is that we see justice rampant, or injustice rampant in our world. We see sin. We see what might be skewed justice or fake justice in our world. But when God finally judges, of which this is a picture, it will be perfect justice. Everything will be made right. And in fact, really there's apocalyptic, there's kind of an apocalyptic turn in this image of God judging. If you will look at the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, it talks about really the, the Son of God, Christ Himself, coming back and in return, and in His return, doling out judgment on the world. And it describes in this way, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, notice, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So this is really a picture of divine, complete, eschatological, really end times kind of judgment. And God is saying that, what He's saying right here is that in one day, you see injustice, you see crime, you see sin, rampant sin, God will eventually be the one to judge. And God does not need our help, nor does He need anyone's help in judging. So God is self-sufficient when He carries out judgment. But we should also observe that the judgment that God is doling out on this nation is bringing salvation. The destruction of Israel's enemies, if you think about it, is Israel's salvation. And isn't it true for, for us today that the judgment of sin 
and death is our salvation. Whenever we see a salvation, there's, there's God judging and there's God delivering His people in some way. And so God, secondly, is self-sufficient in salvation. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Verses, verse 4 says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. And so notice this, so my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. So we see that God is appalled at the injustice in the world. Just as He was appalled with the atrocities that were inflicted upon His own people during this time, who were enduring great judgment from their enemies, God is also moved through any injustice and through any sin. And so, when God judges, it's not as an impersonal, impar- uh, what is it? An impersonal judge who's just like, oh, you know, I'm just here for the law. Well, God is the law, but God is also personally offended by sin. And He performs what we might call the messy work of salvation. That means, you know, if, if you need to save someone or something, you have to defend and get rid of what's going to harm them. And this is God's judgment upon evil people. And so, God is carrying out the salvation in a great act of self-sufficiency. And we see that in a similar way. Um, we saw that a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 59, how God looked out on His own people and He saw injustice. And He saw the lacking of truth. And He says in Isaiah 59, verses 15-16, through 16, truth is uh, the prophet speaking, truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So basically, bad is good, good is bad during this time. And the Lord saw it and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one to intercede that His own arm brought Him salvation and His righteousness upheld Him. When God moves for judgment, and He doesn't move all the time, He's very patient and He waits for the right time, but when God moves, He moves swiftly and He does it Himself. And it's out of His own personal displeasure we see, out of His own state of being appalled by atrocity, He acts swiftly. And we see it continued in in verse 6. He said, I trampled down the peoples in My anger. I made them drunk in My wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So God's wrath, He's likening it to like a strong drink that makes someone you know, stagger, makes them kind of tipsy, and makes them weak. And he's saying this is the kind of judgment that's coming to people who are against him, who are his enemies. But don't misunderstand this to think that God, when he judges people, when he inflicts wrath upon people, that he flies off the handle. But rather, this is a glimpse of God's judgment in relation to evil. The evil is so bad that the judgment is proportional and appropriate for the evil that he's judging. And so just real quick, it's just a takeaway from these first few verses. It's comforting to know that, first of all, that God feels angry at injustice. But many times, especially among a lot of modern churches, you, that's all you really get is that, hey, God's grieving with you. God is for you. God, God suffers along with you. And He just hates it when bad things happen. But the God we believe in, the God of the Bible 
also can take action, and He takes action Himself. And so not only is it comforting that God has compassion on His people who are being, you know, have uh, violences inflicted upon them by their enemies, but it's also, if you will, unburdening to know that God will eventually Himself carry out um, judgment and salvation for His people. God will certainly punish sin, and God will do that Himself. And so we move from this striking image to an interesting passage in, um, into Isaiah. We transition into a, a kind of a song, if you will, of the prophet retelling the goodness of God, even as the judgment of God kind of sticks in our mind as an after image. The prophet transitions to a meditation on the goodness of God, that God is faithful, that God is loving. So let's read chapter uh, 63, verses 7 through, um, we'll read 7 through 9 initially. He says this, he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So this is the prophet recounting the days of old. As I mentioned, this is the prophet bringing back into the present reality, the memory of God's faithfulness in the past. But it's also an apology, if you will, or I should say an explanation for the state of things today. Because as we'll continue to read, the prophet not only brings up God's faithfulness, but their own rebellion, the reason they're in exile and they're being judged by God. But this is really how we as Christians even today should remember God's love on a daily basis. Remembering His love and His mercies. And it's actually the format and the purpose of many of the Psalms you might read. Where actually, you think, oh, the Psalms are, you know, this is a, a song of worship and there is songs that say, you know, Psalms that say, just say, praise the Lord. And that's, you know, the, the 90% of the Psalm. But there are also many Psalms that tell a story. And the reason it tells a story is to remind God's people of His faithfulness. In Psalm 145, verses 4-7, through seven, we see the, the role that the Psalm itself is trying to accomplish for God's people. And he says this, "...one generation shall commend your works to another." another generation, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So this is really the importance of, of course, knowing God's Word. I mean, I think... 
Um, we would all advocate, you know, daily Bible reading, but knowing it intimately allows us, just like that, that prisoner in the Soviet Russia did, allows us to recall those things to memory. And to, for those things, the memories of God's past faithfulness in the Scriptures, bringing those things to life and giving ourselves life and faith. You know, I don't have to tell you guys that we're in election season right now, but there's a saying out there that a lot of elections, you know, are decided by what happens, you know, 12 to 24 hours before election day. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a good indication of how, especially during this era and during this age of just momentous distraction, how we often make decisions and how we often form our thoughts about God. Often in times of crisis, we, we call out to God and we think, oh, why isn't He here? But often we forget to remember His goodness. Understanding the whole of God's salvation, in which He promised so many, uh, in which He has so many promises for us, is really remembering the story of the salvation story, the his story of what we would call redemptive history, and how God worked in real times and in real ways to real people in the past. And remembering those things helps us and encourages us and informs our conversation and our relationship with God and informs our prayer life. There's a, um, a good book. I know we're almost done with Isaiah, but there's a good devotional that my wife picked it up. And uh, it's about $22 retail if you want to try to find it. It's called Isaiah by the Day by Alec Mottier. And um, he has this great thought about the remembering the goodness of God for Isaiah 63, just if I can read that to you briefly. He says, when you're, we're about to pray and ask God for things, he says, start with God. Start with His abundant goodness, His loving claim of His people, His identification with us in our needs, His forbearance, and His faithfulness now to what He was then. And then he says, now that we are better placed to speak to Him of our needs, to know what to ask and be confident of a hearing, and then he says, now that, that we are, we can you know, pray and we can ask God for, for the things that we need. And so remember that God acts out of His goodness. And that's what we read in verse 7. God acts out of His own love and His goodness. That's why Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And he says, it's according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He granted according to His compassion and according to His steadfast love. What is God's motivation in engaging with us and in covenanting with a people? He has no external motivation. He has no outward obligation. No one's pressuring Him to do this. He does this out of His own love and His own inherent goodness. But He also does it out of a parental or, or like a fatherly goodness. And that's how He's described in verse 8. He says, "For Surely they are My people and they are children who will not deal falsely. Look how God sees His people in here. He sees them as children. And we might get a sense of like irony in this situation currently in exile, and they're being judged for their idolatry, and they're rebelling against God. And we see right here God saying, well, surely they're not going to... When God originally you know, met them, He says, oh, surely not, they're not going to deal falsely with Me. And there, there is a little bit of irony in there. But it's not to say that God, when 
He covenanted with His people. He made a compact with them. He's not speaking out of naivete. He's not thinking, oh, these will be great people. He already knows what's going to happen. But rather, this is supposed to help us understand that this is not only God's will for them to obey and to be, um, not be false to them, but it's representative of His demeanor towards them. Meaning that God has so many abundant mercies that it's almost like God's always thinking the best of them and will always be there whenever they should repent and return to Him. He wants to be close to them. And we see the closeness of God in the intimacy in which He he can feel their pain, if you will. In their affliction, verse 9, He was afflicted. Isn't that incredible? The closeness that God wants to have with His people. And not only that, He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old as it is in verse 9. So this is the arrangement. This is the establishment, the foundation of God's goodness on which God is building a covenant with them. But what brings Israel to their state that they're in today? Well, as we'll continue to read in verses 10-14, through it was their rebellion. Verse 10 says, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Look at this turn of events. Verse 11, though, then He remembered the days of old of Moses and His people. Where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of His flock? Where is He who put in the midst of them His Holy Spirit, who caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for Himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that, that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. While their sins really separated themselves from God, while their sins rebelled against God and, and, and attempted to get, get rid of His rule over them, God still is after His people. He's the one who continues, wants to be present in their life, to be continually guiding them as one would guide a flock. And all this is for the glorious name of God. And as it is in verse 14. And so we see God's faithfulness, but we also see the people's rebellion. And this is the story, this is the psalm, if you will, the song that Isaiah is trying to teach his people of, hey, this is the goodness of God, but this is how we fall short. And reading this and understanding their own history, therefore they are in a place to respond. And therefore we see our response in verses 15-19. through 19, And this is where we'll spend um, a little bit more time. And it's Isaiah's plea and his prayer with God. And it's really beautiful. In verse, four, uh, verse 15, we see this. Isaiah calling, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. 
You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is, our na- is Your name. O Lord, why do You make us wander from Your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear You not? Return for the sake of Your servants, the tribes of Your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down Your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom You have never ruled, like those who are not called by Your name. So in this passage, in this short last section, Isaiah is responding to the promises and the goodness of God. Isaiah knows too well the character of God to not expect some sort of action or expect to, um, or to make it a, a, a good guess of how God is feeling during this time. He's saying, God, where is your zeal when we're in exile? When we feel fatherless and abandoned and we don't have really a people anymore? And so the, uh, the narrator here is really bringing back to memory what God has done and inserting that into his prayer. And he's asking, surely God's goodness is not simply a thing of the past. Surely that wasn't you know, what they would call, those, those weren't just in Bible times or in, in Moses' times. Surely God's goodness is applicable to us today. We have, you know, in these last few verses, we have two kind of contrasting visions of the characteristics of God. We see God as a vengeful deliverer, able and willing to deliver His people. But we also see God in, this, in the second section about, uh, we see God as a, a loving Father who's compassionate and who's near. And who when they hurt, He even hurts. But it seems like from the prophet's words that they don't see any of those gods, if you will. They don't see either of those characteristics of God. And he's saying, we just want your presence. Show up like you have shown up before. And they feel forsaken. And if you will, they feel orphaned in this land. Because in verse 16, he says, Abraham does not know us. Israel does not acknowledge us. Which is to say that you know those great patriarchs of the old, they don't know who we are. They can't deliver us. And that's why he starts with, you are our Father. You are our Father. And he ends the same verse with, you, O Lord, our, our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is Your name. So it's an acknowledgement from Isaiah that although they are seemingly cut off from any physical you know, great leader or patriarch, they are never cut off from God's covenant with them. And he likens it to a father-child relationship which can never be cut off. And in the Old Testament, we see a lot of different instances of God really behaving fatherly with, with, uh, with His people, which would give justification for Isaiah to say, well, you are really our Father in this way. You are the Father of your people. And we see uh, three ways in which God acts like a father that I'm just going to go through real quick. Um, in the Old Testament especially, number one, God really acts like a father in, in creation. He's kind of referred to that in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 the end of verse 6 in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, Moses is talking to the people and he says, is he not your father 
who created you, who made you, and established you. So Moses wasn't talking literally, but he was talking in a way that we are really God's offspring in the sense of creation, that God has created us. But he says, um, or later we see, in, in, especially in Isaiah chapter 63, we see that God is also our father, or the father of his people by, their, by the protection that he shows. Of course, in verse 16, we see that Isaiah is saying, You, are Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. And even if you go to Isaiah chapter 64, the very next chapter, um, in verse 8, you know, we'll, we'll get to it next week, but just to read it right now, he says in verse 8, Now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And so God really has His hand upon them and He's shaping them and He's protecting them. But also, God is fatherly, as we see in the Old Testament, by showing compassion to His children. He has the compassion of a father. Psalm 103, verse 13 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. God has the compassion of a father. And you know, you know in the last year, we've we've had a daughter and you know I never really knew fully the compassion of a father but I remember the first time she was crying and she actually had one tear running down and I was like take all my money like you want anything I'll give you anything like that the compassion just you know jumped out of me but really that's that's how God feels towards his people in this way that's how he's being described in the old testament so Israel as a whole Isaiah is saying we look to you for our very origins, our very defense, and our daily care. We can't look to anywhere else but to this sufficient God and to His love in this time. And so they were called not to put their faith in their ancestors or even their own lineage, but only in God and to have that relationship with Him. But despite this great realization, the people continue to go astray and the people continue to go and continue to wander in judgment in verse 17. Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? So Isaiah says, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. And then he notes the promises of God and how you know, he knows there's so much more to the promises of God that haven't yet been fulfilled. Because in verse 18, he says, Your holy people held possession only for a little while. Their promised land, the place where they would worship God, the place where they had the temple of God. He's saying they, that was only a short time if you think about the great span of eternity. He knows, he knows the promises of God are so much greater than this. And he knows to expect God's intervention in the future. And Isaiah closes our chapter with these words, and they're not very encouraging. He says, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. So what he's saying, he's saying, if you look at us in any natural way, you wouldn't be able to tell that we were God's special chosen people by, by outward things. And so it's by faith that we continue to move. It's by faith that we continue to plea for God's intervention and for God's presence in our life. 
He continues the prayer, of course, and this plea to God in the next chapter. But for our purposes, we're just kind of kind of wind down and first understand a little bit more about what it means to see God as a father. Because Isaiah's main plea in here is he's remembering the goodness of God when he was personally present in, uh, among his people. He looks to a future time, of course, when God is personally present delivering judgment. And by his own strong right arm, he's delivering salvation for his own people. And he looks to the past and he looks at God's intervention and how he strengthened the, the hand of Moses and how Moses delivered people through God's strength. And he says, what we really need is just the presence of God. We need God to return into our lives. And if there's something to understand about how the New Testament um, portrays God as a Father, it's that God is bringing His presence into our lives. God wants to have a presence in our lives. Because if we understand a little bit more about what Christ showed us about God the Father, we'll understand that God isn't just looking for a relationship between a people, quote-unquote, but He's looking for a relationship with every one of us today. Fatherhood, or being fatherly, isn't just a descriptor of the actions of God as it was in this chapter. Fatherhood, as Christ informs us, it really defines the first person of the Trinity, of God the Father. And we see God the Father fully in the revealing of God the Son. Because God sent His Son to this earth who took on human flesh and the Son showed us the nature and the goodness of the Father. And not only did He reveal the Father to us, but He showed us the way to get to the Father. You, as you might remember in, in places like John 14.6, He says, there's only one way to God. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through Myself. And so when Jesus shows up onto the earth, He shows us how to come into a loving relationship with a true Father. A loving Father. And so, we should understand that while fatherhood was characteristic of the actions of God intervening upon His people in the Old Testament, we should not understand ourselves to be true children of God in the true spiritual sense. Because Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Often people say, you know, we're all children of God. And that's true to some extent that we all come from God in a way, if you want to think about it like this. But if we are, we are naturally children of wrath who are entering into a judgment because we're naturally rebellious against God. We've rejected God by the sins we commit. We've um, kind of thumbed our noses at God because we are naturally sinful and that's our inclination. But God sent His Son so that we might enter into a real, intimate relationship with God as our Father, into a deeper relationship with God. And so, we're going to end by looking at really God's um, fatherhood, for God's true fatherhood that, that we learn from the pages of Scripture that we learn through His Son, and what He offers us as a Father Number one, God offers us eternal life as a Father. In 
1 John chapter 5, verse 1, we read that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And in verse 11, he continues to say, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is a great promise we have today through Christ that those people in Israel so many hundreds of years back did not have is eternal life. But also we see God's offer to us is also love. Love. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we see what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The love of God was evidenced to the people of Israel by the way they delivered them daily and He, he attended to them and they, He delivered them by, by delivering from their enemies. But the love of God that really surpasses all of that is the fact that God wants to spiritually adopt us and be our personal Father, if you will. The, the third thing that God offers us today through Christ as a good Father is His presence. John uh, chapter 15, it's not, it's not on the screen, but John chapter 15, Jesus tells His disciples, I will not leave you orphans, but I will give you the Holy Spirit. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We desperately need the presence of God in our lives. And that's what the Holy Spirit is, that the Father gives to us when we believe, on the, when we believe in Christ and believe in what He did for us. And fourthly, as a father, God also promises, and this is not very exciting, but He promises to discipline us. He promises to discipline us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, it says this, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So God offers to discipline us. And let me tell you why that's a good thing. Because Isaiah's plea for God to intervene, really had this as its underlying issue that we are wandering, we are lost, we are in exile, and we need a way to get back to the, the presence of God that we once knew as a people. And in true cases, if we are believers today, we should really want God's discipline and His direction where God is saying, no, don't do this, or no, don't do that. And when God intervenes in our life and maybe puts us in a place where we know we have been um, disobedient, he, he puts us in a place where we know we're kind of being set on the sidelines for a little bit or, or we're being told not to do something. Those are all good things because it's God guiding us toward Himself. So that's what Christ does for us today. That's how He offers Himself to us presently as a way to get to the goodness and all the blessings and all the promises of, that God the Father wants to give you. Because God does not just want a personal relationship with Renaissance Christian Church. He wants a personal relationship with each and every one of you. And we need to call out to Christ to believe on Him and we will have that relationship 
that intimate relationship with the Father. When we call on Christ, we have all our sins forgiven and we are shifted from on our way to hell and judgment as God's enemy. We are shifted from that road onto a road of life and forgiveness and God's indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit. So as we consider that and meditate on it, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to call You Father. The Lord, we understand, it's not just a title for us to call out. It's not just us saying, Daddy. But Lord, it's us understanding that You are unto us a a fatherly figure. The Lord, You care for us and You protect us and You discipline us. And it's all for our good. And I pray for anyone in here who recognizes their need for a father. Lord, maybe their earthly father is absent. Or maybe their earthly father is just a bad example. I would pray that they would cry out to You as their father. That we would all cry out to You and look to You as our provision, as our defense, and our deliverer in all situations. So I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.